Section 1 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 1, October 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Walker, Kent, Connecticut. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 1, October 1896, Section 1, The House That Jack Built, by Harold Donovan Hilton. In western Indiana, on the banks of the Wabash, is a certain town famous as the home of a senior United States senator, famous as the home of a contemporary of 14 presidents, but perhaps even more widely known through the fame of its racetrack, which holds the light harness records of the world. It is not the river, nor of the race course, however, nor of the silver-tongued orator, nor the senior senator, nor yet particularly of the town that I write but of the house that Jack built. At the intersection of 6th and Chestnut Streets, it stands, an odd and heavy-looking old stone house, fully furnished, though untenanted, slowly falling to decay within two squares of the busiest corner of town. The grounds are of ample dimensions, occupying quite one-fourth of the block in which the house stands, and are enclosed by an ornamentally sawed wooden fence, now rotting slowly away. Upon the lawn, great forest trees stand in primeval dignity, and among them a once magnificent shell-paved drive winds up to the massive portal. Often as I passed it, I wondered that the owner of so valuable a property should allow it to deteriorate. Indeed, from the day I saw it first, the place possessed an unaccountable interest for me, and so strong did this interest become that for no other reason I changed my boarding-house to the square diagonally opposite. Here my room is by no means as comfortable as the one I had left. The fare was worse, while the price remained the same. Yet I left perfectly satisfactory lodgings in order to be near this house, though I had never known an occupant of it or even so much as the architect. I neglected to say that at this time I was a newcomer in the town, where I had received an appointment as night-telegrapher and that it was upon my first trip to the office that I had noticed the house and christened it with the title already given. After that, every morning, as I would come to my room during the young hours, I would pass this house, often stopping to gaze wonderingly at its shadowy windows and neglected grounds. Finally, as I grew familiar with my new boarding place, I asked in turn each of my fellow boarders to tell me what he knew of the house. But though all had noted its gloomy appearance, their information, as well as that of our landlord, was as meager as my own. In the afternoon, after sleeping the greater part of the day, I would usually take a walk, and in whatever direction I started, I would invariably return to my room by way of the house that Jack built. As time wore on, however, I began to realize the absurdity of these proceedings, and to avoid that corner, though to do so I was obliged to go two blocks off the direct route to the office. It was then, with the idea of removing myself from this strange influence, I commenced to look about for another room, that an incident occurred that brought this resolve to a head. One day, in early spring, I went to my work as usual, but had been on duty only about four hours when I received a message from my brother, whom I had not seen for several years, saying that he would arrive at one o'clock. Upon explaining the circumstances to the dispatcher, 
I was granted a leave of absence for the rest of the night, and as soon as the man sent from the extra list of the city office had arrived, I gave him the necessary instructions and started briskly for my room. The wholly unexpected message had driven every other subject from my mind, and I walked rapidly up Sixth Street, unconscious of my surroundings or the fact that I had attempted a shortcut, until I was brought to a halt by a sudden spasm of dread and found myself inside the fence of the old house on the corner of Chestnut Street. How long I stood there, one foot slightly raised and as slightly in advance of the other as if to take a step, my arms swung one back and the other forward, as though I had been frozen stiff while walking, I shall never know. During that time I saw nothing, I heard nothing, I felt nothing but terror that destroyed almost the wish to escape and I was within twenty feet of the most frequented thoroughfares of a city of thirty thousand people. When I did get out of the grounds, it was by walking straight across the lawn, at the edge of which I paused, looking back in vain for any shape that would account for my terror. Then I turned, placed my hands upon the low fence, and vaulted over. The minute that my feet touched the sidewalk, every vestige of weakness left me, and I hurried across to my room, prepared it, and went with all haste to the station. Two days after the events just narrated, my brother ended his brief visit, and I moved back to my former room, where, from thenceforward, I was completely removed from the region of the house, excepting as I passed within a square of it in my journeys to and from the office. But if I was removed from its vicinity, I was not free from its strange influence." With the advancing summer, my afternoon walks became more frequent and often. While pacing slowly along, intent upon matters of entirely different matters, I would glance up to find myself in front of the house that Jack built. Indeed, this happened so constantly that, though the moment before I could not have told upon what street I was, when the instant arrived I knew, without looking up, that I stood opposite the massive old doorway. One day I was frightened to find myself with my hands upon the fence, and almost in the act of leaping over at the very spot I had made my former entrance to the grounds. And though I finally got away without crossing the fence, frequently after this I felt the same temptation. Soon, no matter what my occupation, the undercurrent of my mind was ever busy with the house that Jack built. From being amused I became alarmed. Madness seemed staring me in the face. Already I was a monomaniac, and I knew it. Finally, I applied for an exchange to another division of the service, hoping to find peace of mind among new scenes. In the course of a few weeks, my application was favorably reported on, and I was informed that at the end of the month I should be transferred to the Western Division. On the last night of my stay in town, I was, of course, off duty, and while putting the finishing touches to my packing, I was seized by a longing to see once more the house that Jack built. Resistance was useless. In the end, I took up my hat and hurried out, in the hall stumbling over a small bull's-eye lantern, the toy of one of the children. To reach the house, I was obliged to cross the main portion of the city from south to north, and taking a car, I was soon at Eagle Street, where I alighted and walked the one remaining square. Very cautiously I crept down Sixth Street to where an evergreen hedge separates the lawn from the next house. There I turned and tiptoed back to Chestnut Street, and to the boundary on that side. I had met no one, and not even a trolley car had passed. Returning to my favorite place in front of the house, 
I stood for a few minutes, gazing steadily at its faint outlines and forcing my lips to form the words, I am free. Suddenly, to my amazement, with a peculiar gliding motion, utterly unlike my usual go-as-you-please gait, I began to approach the corner, stopped at the identical place where I had once crossed the fence, and where again I found myself with my hands placed to vault it. As I stood there, it seemed impossible that I should leave the town without once more crossing that fence. Then I ran, not in fear, but in pursuance of a fixed and definite purpose. My pace did not slacken until I had reached my room, where I secured my revolver and shoved it into the side pocket of my coat, noticing as I did so that it was just twenty minutes of twelve. As I came downstairs, I remembered the dark lantern. I shook it to see that it was full, lighted it, reversed the slide, and, putting it under my coat, left the house. This time I did not take a car, but walked the half-mile to the charmed spot, where, stopping only long enough to be sure that I was not observed, I vaulted over the fence into the grounds. I had taken ten or twelve steps, and was congratulating myself that my previous fright and worry had been without cause, when I stopped, seized again with a sudden terror. I was in the exact position and upon the very spot of my first adventure. Summoning up all my willpower, I walked toward the house, and with each step the torture became more acute. The suffering was not physical. I did not tremble, my hair did not rise, my eyes did not start from their sockets. Yet so great was the mental strain that each muscle was as tense as steel. For days afterward I was sore and stiff as though I had engaged in violent exercise. In a few minutes I had reached the house and walked slowly around it in search of a window that would give easy access to the interior. I was fortunate enough to find one that yielded to my fingers without obliging me to resort to my only jimmy, a huge jackknife. The house is built in the shape of a St. George's cross, and in the angle furthest from both streets is the window I had opened. I stood for a few minutes to note the result of my temerity, half expecting to be felled by a blow coming from nowhere and delivered by nothing. The blow did not fall. I swung in through the window, closed the inner shutters, and felt carefully around the walls, making not the slightest noise. Then, shutting one door, I took the lantern from under my coat and reversed the slide. As I turned up the wick and my eyes became accustomed to the light, I was astonished at the size of the room. I had supposed from my journey around the walls that it was large, but I was not prepared for a hall of fifty by thirty feet. This was evidently the dining room, for in the center was a huge carved mahogany table covered with a yellowed cloth and some pieces of silver dinner service. The walls and ceiling of the room were of paneled oak, and from an elaborately carved centerpiece depended a beautiful chandelier. As I glanced from this last to the floor, which showed brilliantly polished through the dust, my hand sought my pocket and brought forth my watch. The lantern almost dropped from my grasp as I saw that the time was six-twenty. There was a subdued murmur, and as the light fell full upon the dial, I saw that the hands were moving forward at a ruinous rate. I slipped the watch back to its pocket and crossed to a door diagonally opposite the window by which I had entered. Here I again reversed the slide of the lantern. 
The door opened easily, and I entered the room, assuring myself as before that all doors and windows were closed. Then I allowed the light to shine in what evidently was the billiard room. Here everything was complete. The two tables must at one time have been a delight to the players, for I rolled a ball against the cushions and found them still full of life. This room was furnished in the same style as the dining room, with the exception of sundry leather couches and cozy window seats. The next two apartments were drawing rooms, and through them I came out into a large hall with a superb staircase. The first landing was surmounted by an arched panel bearing the letters S.M. in monograms on a diamond-shaped ground. Ascending, I entered several bedchambers, everywhere finding a dignified magnificence that evinced lavish expenditures combined with rare judgment. At the end of the corridor, I went downstairs to emerge into a small entry that must have faced Chestnut Street. There was a door on either side, and I went through the one to the right, re-entering the billiard room. Pausing to take my bearings, I selected the door which would not take me again into the dining room or the drawing rooms. Here I went through the usual process of darkening my lantern before entering the room and of closing the door when I had passed inside. But now, as I made the circuit of the walls, feeling carefully before me, I encountered neither chairs nor tables nor bric-a-brac to interrupt my progress, nor were there any windows or any open door other than that which had given me entrance. The apartment seemed to be circular in shape, and, according to the plan of the house which had been forming in my mind, was in the very heart of the cross. As I turned up the light, I found myself in a room so black that similes fail. A darkness that seemed to live and breathe filled every nook. Looking closely, I saw that the walls were thickly padded and draped with black leather, but without suggestion of the madhouse cell. The drapery of leather was the richest and most artistic decorative effect I had yet seen in this wonderful house. In the middle of the room, a card table, airy, delicate, graceful, and black. The top was covered with padded black leather. I moved over to the table and gave it a push. I might better have pushed at the wall. I lifted and by extreme exertion raised one corner from the floor. Then I knew my surmise was correct. The table was of solid ebony. I looked up. Far, far above I could see a cloudy glow and, a little to one side, a star. I was at the bottom of a well. From the center of the skylight hung a long, slender rod. My eyes followed it downward and rested upon the chandelier. Even the shades and globes were of black lacquer. I glanced at the floor. The velvet carpet was black, and scattered upon it under the table were playing cards, all black, both back and face, save where the latter was relieved by the spots or the design of the court cards. I stooped to pick up one of the cards, and as I did, so the first sound I had heard since entering the house broke the silence. A low, mellow, flute-like note, all alone it swelled for an instant, then another, and a third in sweetest harmony, all in one awful breath to become a demoniacal roar that could only have found voice in the throat of the horrible living blackness which pervaded the room. At the first note, 
I paused to listen, and as the others joined, my recklessness failed me. With an awful shriek, I bolted through a door into a narrow passage leading into the hall. The noise had ceased, but its reverberation shuddered through me as I dashed up the stairway and into the first room that presented where I dropped upon the floor, exhausted. I lay there but a few minutes, nor did the time seem longer to me. Then I rose, cursing my cowardice, and as I stood erect, the light from the lantern, of which I had kept fast hold, fell upon the bed, and, glancing around, I perceived that I was again in a black room. It was a very simple bedchamber, furnished throughout in black. My eyes wandered again to the bed. The mildewed drapery was thrown back, and had a tumbled appearance as if the last occupant had not slept well. As I gazed, the last remnant of my courage oozed away. In vain I strove to master the paralysis stealing over my brain. My soul seemed to gasp. There was a quick and sickening convulsion in my head. After that I do not know what happened until I picked myself up from a cramped posture under the window through which I had gained entrance to the house. Indeed, I can hardly remember how I reached my home, though I recollect that upon recovering my senses I did not wait even to search for my dark lantern or my revolver. This last was a valuable affair that had somehow fallen from my pocket during my adventure in the house. When I entered my room, the little clock on the mantel marked the hour of four. Too exhausted to undress, I flung myself upon the bed and did not wake from a sound sleep until two o'clock in the afternoon. That evening, as I crossed the river on the five o'clock train, I looked downstream and understood the sounds that I had heard while in the card room. The Janie Ray, the one small steamer that plies the river, had come to her moorings in the night. This and the incident of my watch are the only events of this strange series which have ever been fully explained to me. The running down of the watch was caused by the breaking of the escapement. I still carried it, and it does me good service. Nearly two years elapsed before I again visited the scene of my uncanny adventure. The occasion of my visit was the annual race meeting, always an important event in sporting circles. This year, the announcement that Nancy Hanks was to trot against her records of 2.06 and a quarter had attracted sporting men and horse fanciers from all over the United States, and I had obtained leave to attend with a crowd of other employees. That afternoon, of course, we spent at the racetrack, seeing several exciting races, not the least of which was the establishment of a world's trotting record of 2.04. Enthusiasm ran high, and later, in the crowded hotels, strangers brought together for the first time almost from the four corners of the earth swapped sporting stories and compared notes on the day's event, like so many college chums. The hotels were overflowing, and soon after reaching my own, I withdrew from the office to the billiard room. Among a party engaged in playing pool, I recognized, to my amazement, an uncle of mine whom neither I nor any of my family had seen since I was a child. Upon seeing me, he withdrew from the game, and after vainly endeavoring to find seats, proposed a walk. As we left the hotel, he stopped a moment, and, looking around him, said, Well, let's see. I used to be familiar with every inch of this town, but now I need to take my bearings. 
Ah, yes, this way. Let's go this way, he added, starting towards Ohio Street. Then, as he launched out on various reminiscences, we drifted along for some time, hardly conscious of our surrounding, until suddenly we found ourselves on Chestnut Street, directly in front of the house that Jack built. By the way, Uncle, I said, stopping short, do you know anything about this house? Well, I should say so, he answered with a start of surprise. I know more about it than any man living. Then, wheeling about and resting one elbow on the dilapidated fence, he began. Thirty years ago, there was no more promising young man in this town than Sam MacDonald. From boyhood he had shown himself a lad of promise, and his parents were in comfortable circumstances they had given him the benefit of all the educational advantages that the town then afforded. Upon leaving the high school, Sam entered the employ of one of the railroads in the freight department, where, by application and address, he soon won the esteem of all the officials. His kindly, intelligent manner won him friends in all classes. Everybody knew Sam, and everybody liked him. Of course, such a promising, likable fellow was a general favorite with the girls, and Sam could have married almost any of them. At twenty-six he did marry the belle of the town, amid general rejoicing, and the company signified its approval by giving him a clerkship in the auditing department, with an increased salary. In his new work, young MacDonald rapidly rose to the position of confidential clerk, and was cited as the next in line of the promotion to the assistant auditorship. Two children, a boy and a girl, soon came to brighten his home life, and for a few years everything seemed to point to a happy and prosperous career. Here my uncle paused a moment, his face clouded with what was evidently a saddening recollection. Then he continued gravely. In a single night everything changed. One evening, before a general payday, the auditor received a package containing a large amount of money. As the banks were closed, the package was placed in the office safe. In the morning, when the safe was unlocked, the package was missing. Yet the combination showed no sign of having been tampered with. Well, you can imagine the outcome. The combination was known only to three men, the auditor, his assistant, and the confidential clerk. The two former were rich pillars of their respective churches, and supposition naturally fell upon MacDonald. Then he was suspected? I asked as my uncle once more broke off his narrative for a moment. Worse than that, although there was not the slightest evidence against him, he was arrested and thrown into jail. Two days later he was released, as they had utterly failed to make out any case against him. But those two days had cost MacDonald everything. He came out to find his home wreck, his friends turned against him, even his wife, the one person out of all the world who should have stood by him, left him, and refused to see him when he called at her father's house. Still, in spite of everything, he made a hard struggle to live down the unmerited disgrace, investing the few hundred dollars he had laid by in a small hardware business. In less than a year, he was bankrupt. And his wife, I inquired, did she never go back to him? My uncle shook his head. The day after the sheriff had levied execution on his stock, MacDonald met her face to face. He again protested his innocence and, for last time, begged that she would come back to him. 
But she turned away without a word. At that he grasped her by the arm. Listen, Carrie, he said, I have lived an honest life and not one of you would stand by me. Now I may as well have the game as the name. I will build the grandest house in this city, and so help me God there shall not be one honest stone in it. He was as good as his word. That night he went to the one man who had stuck to him. From him he borrowed twenty-five dollars, and, with this as his only capital, left the town the next day, bent on carrying out his terrible scheme. From the very first day his luck was phenomenal. Faro banks, roulette wheels, card games all yielded him a golden harvest, and for the next two years, though he almost never visited his native city, stories of his fabulous gains drifted back to it from Denver, Chicago, New York, New Orleans, San Francisco. The man who had failed in everything honest could not lose money in any gambling device. One day he returned and began the erection of this very house. A famous New York architect was employed to draw up the plans for it, while the most skilled decorators were imported from all over this country and abroad. Paintings from studios of world-famous artists were bought at enormous sums to hang on the walls. China, in special patterns, was fired for him at German and French potteries. The carpets and hangings were all priceless antiques from Persia and India, or rugs that had been woven specially for him. It was indeed the grandest house, not only in the town, but in the whole West. And of the hundreds of thousands expended upon it, not one penny was honestly earned. When at length it was finished, MacDonald took up his residence there with a whole array of servants, and proceeded to open his house to a few select companions of the races and the gambling table. Of all his old friends, only one ever stepped inside his door, and that was the man who had lent him the twenty-five dollars on which he had built his fortune. He stood by him to the last, for he believed in MacDonald's innocence and knew that his only dissipation was the daily round of card-playing that he now found necessary to existence. Even when his own friends went back on him, this one man stuck to him. But not for long. The unnatural strains of MacDonald's life could not last. One evening, when engaged with a half a dozen others in a game of cards, he suddenly clutched at his heart with both hands and then fell back unconscious. An hour later, he was dead. With his last breath, he gasped to the friend who stood by his bedside, Before God, I am innocent. Prove me so to the people of this town, and everything I leave behind is yours. Then, sinking back, he murmured, Bury me in these grounds and pointing to the large safe that stood at the foot of the bed, he whispered to me, To you? I cried in amazement. Yes, my boy, I was MacDonald's friend, and when his will was opened it was found that he had left all of his property, including the house, to me. But I was not to gain possession until his innocence should be proved. Was it ever proved? I exclaimed. No. From that day to this, that terrible mystery has haunted me, for years I gave time, money, everything to solve it. It is as great a mystery to me as ever. And if there is a soul in this town who believes the man who lies buried there is not guilty, I have yet to find him. Understand that it wasn't Sam's fortune that I wanted, but somehow I never could believe him guilty. And the fact that I couldn't clear his memory almost drove me mad. 
So after losing my business, friends, and money in my fruitless attempt to prove his innocence, I drifted to California. There I vowed I would never return. But somehow the other day something drew me back again to the old place. So deeply impressed was I with my uncle's relation of this strange deathbed scene that all the way back I kept silent concerning my own experiences at this house, which I determined to reserve until later. But the next morning, at the breakfast table, we were greeted by news of another deathbed scene that for a time put everything else out of my mind. For at that very hour, when we stood before the house that Jack built, the real thief, through whose crimes Sam MacDonald had lost everything, died, confessing his guilt. Now, after twenty years, it was known that it was the auditor of the railroad, the former pillar of the community, who had stolen the bonds to save himself from ruin, threatened by unlucky speculations. Thus, Sam MacDonald's innocence was finally proved, and the man who had stood by him and believed in him in the face of everything at last came in for his fortune. I have recorded the above occurrences just as they happened. As to the nature of the mysterious influence that guided me for the first and the last time to the house which, as my uncle's adopted son, I shall some day inherit, the reader must judge for himself. End of section 1